People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We are so excited to have Kathy Coach Kemper on the health gig today. Coach Kemper truly is an American icon. She was a professional tennis player and then coached to many famous people, presidents, queens, kings, of which she shares these stories with us today. She's also founded the Institute for Education, IFE, which is a nonprofit organization based here in Washington, D.C., that recognizes and promotes leadership, civility, and the search for common ground all over the world community. Really excited about this conversation today. Welcome, Coach. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is so exciting. As we were saying before, it's kind of really thrilling. We've known each other for a long time. I mean, since our kids were young and junior golf programs. <laughs> and as I was saying to you, you were one that we all sort of in the junior golf program would say, oh, Coach is coming today. <laughs> and the amazing way that you could come and hit the golf ball. And then we would know how great you were at tennis. So this is just a thrill to have you on Health Gig. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm so proud of all the work that you've been doing with BB and R wellness and your conferences, and especially during the pandemic and a little bit post pandemic now. I mean, your work is needed now more than ever. Oh, coach, that is so nice of you to say. And it's so great to have you here today. Can you tell us who you are and where you're from and all your background? I grew up in the Midwest, a suburb outside of Chicago called Northfield, Illinois. My dad was a great athlete and was actually, he was the Chicago city champion in tennis, like wow. three years in a row. And he was a great basketball player. You know, he was just a real good athlete and a real good competitor. So he just treated me just like my brothers. His expectations were just no different. The only difference was that I was playing football and then when I got to fifth grade and I had all the equipment, you know, the shoulder pads, the helmet, everything. When I got to fifth grade, he said, I can't play anymore. And I was devastated. It was what? I can't play anymore. And he said, yeah, I think the boys might be tackling you for different reasons. And so I kind of got that. So I grew up playing all the sports and tennis was just one I excelled in a little bit more and started playing competitively. Well, actually, when I started playing competitively, it was at 10, which nowadays, I mean, you know, you could be done at 10 <laughs> or injured or something. Um, so yes, I've always been active and I've always loved the outside, even being a tennis professional, not a professional player anymore. I much prefer coaching outside. It just makes me happier. It's just such a healthier environment. You know, even when the weather's terrible, it's better outside, I think. You started coaching then. So you played in college. And then when did you start coaching? When did you become Coach Kathy Kemper? Well, that was after I was done playing professional tennis. I was on the Virginia Slims after my freshman year in college. I turned pro. I played for two years and then I went back to school and I was like the assistant tennis coach at Princeton because I was a professional. So I didn't change my status. You know, I was right. done playing professional. I just wanted to go to school. And then I moved to Washington and got an assistant, assistant, assistant <laughs> tennis coach job at Chevy Chase Club. I ran the junior program then. So then I really started to be a tennis coach. You know, that's kind of how it started. 
I was in my early 20s. What was it like being on the tour back then? You know, tours are hard. You think, oh, you travel around the world. And that was really one of my reasons that I wanted to be good enough at tennis so I could travel and first domestically. So I could go to the nationals, the Westerns and everything uh, to be good enough to do that. And then I wanted to be good enough so that I could travel internationally. But basically you don't do any sightseeing. You know, you're working on practice time. It's hard work. It was a wonderful experience. I never did encourage my two daughters Mm -hmm. to be as committed as I was. It's very abnormal. I mean, you know, you're 19 years old and you should be in school and goofing off with your friends and learning and studying and having great conversations about important things. That's more normal. But I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. Right. So that was my ticket to see the world. That's so amazing that you did do that. Okay. So then you moved to Washington, D.C. and you were the assistant, assistant, assistant. (laughs) And at that point, were people referring to you as coach? Because really you did get that label. Is that as the coach at Georgetown University? Is that when that kind of, because that's how I met you, Coach Kemper. (laughs) I think it was probably, you're exactly right, Tricia. When I started being the women's tennis coach at Georgetown University, that was when I think I started doing coach. And, you know, it's always interesting to me. Some people they don't feel comfortable calling me coach. And so they'll say, should I call you coach? And I said, yes, you know, unless you want to call me mom, that's my favorite (laughs) name. But I find anybody that has had a coach, they understand what an important relationship that is and very, very different than a competitor relationship and things. I just got goose pimples when you said that, because it's so true. Coach means a lot of things to a lot of people. So I think you're right you know, to be able to have a mentor, to be able to have someone who's really on your team, somebody who's with you. Yeah. That's a great title, coach. (laughs) (laughs) That title name is what you go by, right? (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So was that, so how long were you the coach at Georgetown University? 12 years. That was a great experience. Those were the days where I was a part-time job. And so I I then started running tennis clubs. I was at Mount Vernon Tennis Club for 26 or 28 years. And then I was running National Cathedral Tennis Club and Georgetown Prep and Visitation. I was very entrepreneurial as well. And I had lots of young people as assistant coaches, assistant pros running, you know, the tennis camps and the women's clinics and the men's teams, all the social events and everything. It was a very busy time when you run a tennis club, evenings, early mornings and weekends are the busiest times. And so I was really working 24 seven for a long, long time. I loved it, but it was really hard work. What was the name of the program that you had started where senators played against the team at Georgetown and that kind of thing? Um, It was called Women at the Net. And that was a fundraiser because I was coaching a lot of members of Congress and administration and presidents and kings and queens and movie stars and all of that. I wanted to raise money so I could attract scholar athletes for my tennis team at Georgetown. So I put together along with Catherine Graham, who was the owner of the Washington Post then and the most powerful woman in the world at that time. And I was her tennis coach. And so she thought that this was a good initiative. And so she was my chairman we invited, you know, the big shots to come and they would play doubles with the girls on my team. 
it was a big success and we raised a lot of money over the years and I got a lot of scholarship money and ended up having an NCAA champion and we got ranked number one in the Big East. And so it was a great effort, you know, and interesting because it was a part-time job. I figured out years ago, I think I got paid about two cents an hour (laughs) (laughs) and Georgetown was not very integrated gender wise in those days. And I was not the most popular coach (laughs) around because I was very disruptive. Father Timothy Healy in those days was the president of Georgetown and he was a Jesuit and he was on my side and he liked me a lot. And so I got a lot of cover from him in my disruptive tactics. It wasn't, you know, an easy thing to do there. You were coaching politicians, well-known people, and one of them was Dora's dad. Can you tell us about that and what that experience was like? Oh, he was so totally wonderful and a very good player. I mean, all the Bushes, you know, you can tell that they started playing at a young age and things. He was such a gentleman, such a wonderful sportsman, a great competitor. When we would play doubles or I would set up doubles, the other players would say, well, should we let him win? <laughs> and, he, you know, he, he knew that that was going on. And he was like, are, are you kidding? You know, and then he was going, I'm going to beat you fair and square anyway. And he always usually did. Other people that you can talk about, any others that stick out that were sort of fun and interesting that's easy to share? One was the Shah Banu, the queen of Iran. And this was of course, after she was exiled. And I was coaching her in South of France in Cap d'Antibes. I would go over there and run this tournament for one of my students at his estate there. Wow. Come and play. And this was so interesting because in those days there were cameras, but no cell phones or anything, but you couldn't have a camera around because she was in tennis clothes. And if those pictures would get out and about, that would be very detrimental to the Shah and her. She was a very good tennis player and very serious about her tennis, but she wore loads of jewelry. (laughs) I mean, loads of- While she's playing. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I would laugh because it's hot in the south of France. In in the summertime, it's really hot. You know, she'd have bracelets on, she had (laughs) rings on, lots of necklaces on, and she was pretty quick because I kept thinking, oh my God, you know, how do you move? And then when you sweat, you know, how do you wipe (laughs) off, you know, towel down and everything? She was not like particularly friendly, not unfriendly, but she was very much a queen, you know? Right, right, right. Very much a queen. (laughs) Um, And then I remember the first time I was teaching the director of the CIA at that time. Wow. it was time to pick up balls. I was feeding balls. It was time to pick up balls. His secret service runs out on the tennis court and starts picking up balls. And I was young at that time and I wasn't quite sure what to do, but you know, I made a instant <laughs> decision that this is no, we're picking the balls up um, because when you're a coach, when you're picking up the balls, that's the time that you discuss what you're doing over time and years, you actually get very close to people in that special coach student relationship. I didn't want secret service there picking up the balls, but they kind of thought they had to, and they backed (laughs) off, you know, right away. But that was kind of a moment of moment 
Terry anxiety and then quick decision. Just I just knew that wasn't going to happen. That also happened at the Swedish embassy where Doro's dad, the president, used to play a lot. And the king was there of Sweden and his secret service or bodyguards or whatever. They came out to try to pick up the balls. And I had to say, no, I'm sorry. You know, this is the king and I will. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Kathy, that's incredible. You were with kings, you were with presidents, you were with queens, and at a relatively young age. Yeah. One more. These are fascinating. Oh, yes. Okay. I won't (laughs) name the name. He was a guest at the 43 Bush White House. Okay. And he wanted a tennis lesson. He was not in politics. And he came to the tennis court and he was so wiped out smoking cigarettes. I mean, he was like a zombie. It was like as if this is the last place I'd rather be. I was like, well, why then did we arrange this and things? And he was such a drip and so uninterested and things. That was kind of stunning to me. And so what'd you do in that case? Did you just keep doing it and feed the balls and just say, okay. And then I keep looking at my watch. hoping. (laughs) God, I would imagine being on the court with all those people. You did sort of have to be in the moment because we talk oftentimes about being Just like what you always talk about. Exactly. Got to be present. Got to be present. Same way, I guess, when you're hitting the tennis ball, right? It's all just one ball at a time. You're hitting it in that moment right then and there. So I just, as you were talking, I thought, God, what you were doing is being in the moment and being present, which is incredible. And their practice. And that's what we always say. It comes in different ways. It doesn't have to always be on the chair or on the mat. So now what are you up to? What are you doing now? What takes your time? Well, I still am coaching. Last Saturday over at the Australians have the ambassador and his wife have a beautiful grass court, really the best private grass court in the country. There aren't many. And uh, we were running a big drill group with the ambassador from the EU and the Irish ambassador and some Silicon Valley royalty that was in town. (laughs) And Justice Breyer and Joanna Breyer. And that was a big success. And then we had lunch afterwards at their pool. So I still do a fair amount of drill groups like that. But most of the time now I spend on the Institute for Education, which is a nonprofit that Jim Valentine, my husband and I started about 30 years ago. As I got older and didn't want to be out in the sun as much, I started spending more time on the Institute for Education and growing the programs there. And so now that's pretty much what we do. So tell us what that is. What is the Institute for Education? Well, it's a nonprofit. Our mission is to harness the power of data innovation and soft diplomacy in the global community. We get diplomats together, we get civic tech people together, we get media, academics, business, and it's all very bipartisan. And we have different programs like the future of AI is one program we have. We have a blockchain with impact program. We have a web three program and our latest initiatives have we founded a free computer science coding camp at the University of Southern California. Viterbi School of Engineering for underrepresented student populations. And that has just exploded. And we've had over 10,000 kids learn how to code, learn robotics, learn about cybersecurity. Our next move is we're scaling that. 
I think that every university in every community should be offering these kind of opportunities to their underrepresented people, because this is the way we can change income inequality and make difference and move communities forward, move kids into really great paying jobs, which then, of course, makes their communities much more successful and much more opportunity. That's what I spend a lot of time on. So Kathy, can you tell us about coach. Jim? Co- coach, sorry. <laughs> coach, exactly, coach. Can you tell us about Jim and about your life with him? And, and I know he's recently passed. So if you don't mind sharing his story and your story, we, we would love to hear it. I mean, it's very cute. We met at the Senate dining room. I was coaching a person named Senator Larry Pressler. He was a senator from South Dakota, and Jim and Larry had gone to Harvard Law School together. And Jim was kind of recently divorced and living in San Francisco. Jim came to town to see Larry, and Larry knew that, you know, obviously I was single and set this up. And, you know, it was one of those things when I walked in and the two of them were sitting there in the Senate dining room. And I thought, oh, wow, that guy is like, I like him. And, you know, I hadn't even said one word to him at all. And then Jim tells a story that when he saw me like walking in, he looked and he thought, oh God, that would be great if she was the one that I'm supposed to meet. So, you know, it it was just a great chemistry right away. And then we dated a few years, kind of long distance. And then he moved to Washington and we got married and I was never big on kids. You know, kids were kind of okay, but I had a great life. I loved my career. And Jim was always like, kids are the best ticket to everything that's important because he had two from his first marriage. So I got pregnant really right away. So Jim and I were both big entrepreneurs. Jim was always very encouraging of me. And actually, he's the reason the Institute for Education started 30 years ago. He said, Kathy, you know, you teach all these big shots, tennis. So why don't just invite one of them to come and have breakfast and I'll invite a few of my finance colleagues and we'll just have an off the record talk and you know they'll like to learn about what's going on in the finance world and Wall Street and business and research and development and things and we'll like to know what's going on in that person's life. I thought that was the stupidest idea. <laughs> I thought I am a tennis coach. I am not an organizer of a breakfast. I'm a tennis coach. And then I thought it would be maybe a little bit improper or imposing on a person, you know, that was a big shot and things. But he kept at me. And so Les Aspen, who was Secretary of Defense, I was his tennis coach. And he was a really good friend, too. And I asked him and he said, of course, coach, I'll be happy to do that. That sounds great. We had a breakfast, then, you know, it just built, people started hearing about it, wanting to get invited. I kept asking different of my tennis people. So fundamentally at the very beginning, it was only, you know, people that I was close to from teaching tennis and then it, you know, really matured. And now obviously it's very mature, but if it wasn't for Jim, I wouldn't be doing that. So he was always one to push one forward, like get out of your comfort zone, you know, be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's the only way that, you know, that you can really push yourself. And so I'm so grateful to him for doing all that. We both were big adventurers. And so Jim was an entrepreneur and could control his schedule. I could control my schedule. So we were able to take lots of big adventure trips with the kids over the years and be away for a month or six weeks, you know, go to India and Southeast Asia and the Galapagos and the Arctic and, you know, 
that was like a defining thing in our life. You know, sometimes, especially when kids are teenagers, not everybody gets along very well. Right. You know, people can be jerks <laughs> to each other. We were just like very normal and that's But when we traveled, that was our sweet spot. You know, everybody cooperated. Everybody'd be on time. Everybody, you know, was interested in asking questions with the tour guides. And there were no bad attitudes. That was always our sweet spot. And we've got a trip coming up next week to go gorilla trekking in Rwanda. And that was one that should have been with Jim. He was very excited to do that. Anyway, Kelsey, my oldest daughter, her fiance is taking Jim's place, which is poetic too, because Jim and the fiance were like best friends and big golfing buddies and played in all the golf tournaments at our club in Southern California and our club in Washington, D.C. Jim passed away how long ago? About 17 months ago. So Kathy, could you share with us what your grief process is, what it looks like and your experience with it? Because it's so real, right? Yeah, it's very real. Tricia, you've been through this as well. I think for the maybe the first eight or nine months, you're just operational. You know, every day is horrible and hard. And you look back and you kind of wonder how you did it. You know, I got a grief coach who was terrific. It was all virtual. She was wonderful. She kind of validates all the things that you're feeling and, you know, because there's no good or bad or anything. And I think the grounding thing for me actually was whenever I've been in a bad place emotionally, I've always leaned into exercise. I have boot camps that I go to really early in the morning, like 530. Sometimes, you know, they're hard to do that at 530. But if you keep your eye on your ball and you think about how great you're going to feel when you're done, it gives you motivation to, you know, get your butt out of bed and to do it. I found a couple boot camps here in Washington that were outside, you know, in a parking lot. I just did it. I think that that is really what got me through, you know, was the pandemic too. So everything had to be outside as well. I've always been an outdoor person, but it really solidified to me, like feeling that, you know, grounding, feeling, you know, the sand in or the grass or whatever in your feet and the sunshine and hearing the birds or the rain or whatever. It was my lifeline. It always has been too. So I had something to fall back on. I didn't have to start from scratch, I think. And I think work too. You get distracted. You're working like, you know, and you have your family and you have to think of them and how the children are doing. They lose their dad. I think all that helps not getting totally absorbed into a grief that you can't even speak about because it's so overwhelming. I mean, I think losing a child, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Thank goodness. But I think after that, it's probably one of the hardest things ever. You talk a lot about during this time self-care and getting up, exercising was a big part of it. But when you talk about self-care, what else did you have to do? Or what else did you work for you in terms of self-care? Like I love to read. And so I made sure that I was reading things that I could find a little escape from the grief a little bit. I gave myself a lot more time to do that kind of reading. I took my kids to a couple spas you know, there you're on a schedule and you're just busy working out and, you know, going to classes or meditating or trying all sorts of different things that you normally don't do at home from music and bongs to everything. (laughs) But this one thing I did find was called the labyrinth culture. 
we were at a spa in Arizona, Miraville. We took a class. I was not familiar with this at all. And my takeaway was that the labyrinth is a ancient custom from all over the world. They don't really know where it started. It's outside. Labyrinths have to be outside and they're round and you walk any way you want to walk. Like the Indians walk one way, you know, in Mesopotamia, they walked another way. The idea is that you can either get rid of some things or you can acquire some things. And when I learned that, I thought, oh God, I just want to get rid of a little bit of sadness, just a little bit, you know, just help me, help me. So yeah. I'm just not so sad every moment. And you take up a pebble or a little rock or something. And then I wanted to get rid of regrets. I wanted to stop regretting, you know, like how I could have been a better wife or things like that. Right. Because I can't change that. And it wasn't productive. And so I had two things I wanted to get rid of. And I walked around and you walk around and then you leave it right in the middle and you just put it there and it's gone. And you're like, there you go. Bye-bye. And I tell you, it really helped me a lot. And then we did it again in Mexico at a place called Rancho La Puerta. Now, sometimes I go down to Georgetown waterfront that has a labyrinth. I'm still getting rid of stuff. I haven't started to (laughs) acquire anything yet, but that helps. I mean, it really helps. I think it's, you know, like homeopathic things. If you believe in it, it's probably going to be helpful. And if you cast aspersion on it and don't, then there's no chance it will be helpful. But it is, it's that meditative walk, that meditative being right there with a single intention, like you said, in that moment, in that moment. But grief is so real. Like I I can remember with my physical, it's so physical, which is shocking, right? Because no one talks about that. No, They don't talk about that. You have headaches and you might throw up your body just is not the body, you know, it's so real. And if you don't attend to the grief, if you don't attend to it, it will always be there. I remember my grief coach was saying, you know, Trisha, light a candle and sit with it and just say, okay, I'm going to sit with you now. I'm here with you now. When I blow the candle out, we're going to be done for just right now, you know, and we'll come back to it later. But if you don't tend to your grief, it does take over and it becomes all consuming. So it is, it's a process. How long now has your husband been gone? It'll be eight years in July. That's a long time, you know? Do you find you're still grieving? Yeah, I think what it is, is, and and I learned this too along the way, is time does not heal. Healing certainly takes time. Because I can remember, Kathy, people saying to me, okay, it's been one year, how you doing? (laughs) I'm like, one year, oh my God, you know? And as you said, there's more things going on. Two years, you know, three years, four years. But life goes by so quickly. I even said this to the kids. There seems to be space now. Before, even up till now, there didn't seem to be space between Danny's death and now. But in between for us, several other family members, my father died six months after Danny died. My brother died then within the year. There was just a lot of slammed and a lot of loss, you know. So now there does feel like there's space. And now too, this incredible appreciation for life. And knowing that. And I know Jim too would have felt this way. And Danny, if they could have had a little bit more time, that comes up a lot when I might be in a moment where I'm like, oh God. And then I'm like, you know what? Wow. Even if it's like this, you're really lucky to be here. Yeah. Good for you. But there is always that feeling for me anyway. God, I wish she was here to see that. Yeah. Oh, we had our first grandbaby. 
You're yeah. right. We have this first grandbaby, <laughs> little, little girl, and she's so precious. It does just come up, you know, obviously. And you're like, ah, wow, it would be great if you were here. Yeah. It's not easy, but it does get, Kathy, from my experience, it does get a little less intense, but it's a loss. And in a way, you don't want to fill that up either because that's a life experience. Yeah. Like Danny, Jim was sick and prostate cancer and he died at home, which was a beautiful, beautiful experience. I mean, the most painful thing probably, you know, will have ever lived through, but the most beautiful thing as well. And I find that in some ways I don't want to forget some of the horror that it was, but yet I want to get a little away from it. So it doesn't make me ill you know, physically, like it has for a long time. It's kind of a dichotomy and a balance, I think, because you want to keep remembering them because as time goes, you forget certain things, you know, Um, like I call his phone sometimes to just hear his voice. And I, you know, I saved a lot of the voicemails that were there and things. So yeah, it's something. As a coach, you end up having to dig so much deeper than you think you even could have, you know? Yeah. No, I know. It's just not easy. Congratulations on your little grant. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you for sharing that with all of us. I know how much you love Jim and I know how special he was and the difference that he made in so many people's lives. So thank you you. for sharing that. (laughs) And thank you for being on Health Gig. Do you know how much we admire you, coach? And um, just a thrill to have you here. Well, congratulations for all your successes and things. Danny would be so proud of you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. And have a great trip in Rwanda. Tell Doro I said hi. (laughs) Sure will. Okay. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.